Hello and welcome to another episode of Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach English and film at McEwen University. And the following is a lecture that I gave to my students in a course on 100 Years of Horror in the winter of 2021. This next lecture is on a film that none other than Wes Craven, horror master himself, described as containing a wild, feral energy that I had never seen before, with none of the band-aids that soften things. I was scared shitless. Craven was speaking of none other than Toby Hooper's notorious The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the subject of today's Triple-Bladed Sword. The 1970s were a period of really intense indie horror. And just a few years before the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was released, um, Wes Craven, who is now a name in horror, um, but was then a nobody, made a film called The Last House on the Left. And it was so brutal uh, that I never once considered including it in this series. And so I, I say that to say that, that, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was thought of by Wes Craven as a really terrifying movie. He, he, he said that it looked like someone stole a camera and started killing people. That's how he described his experience of seeing the film. But knowing Craven's Last House on the Left and knowing Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I still chose Massacre. Um, because it's, it's got a greater sense of, um, landmark in terms of horror. When I was telling people about which films I was going to use for this course, and I would get to the 1970s and I would say the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, people would respond by saying, I don't actually think that's that scary. It's not really that great of a movie. And I would say, regardless Everybody knows it. You say the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and people kind of go, mm, mm hmm, mm hmm, whether they've seen the film or not. And, and so it has this notoriety that almost is, is on the level of like urban legend. Um, when I was a kid, we knew sort of what happened in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What you knew is that there was a crazy guy with a chainsaw massacring people. That's about as much as you, you needed to know. Uh, at the time, you knew that it was also <laughs> something you weren't going to get to see as a kid or as a teenager. I mean, there were all sorts of movies you could get access to, but the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in Canada, at least, wasn't wasn't one of them. Um, I have a friend who uh, sent me the ratings card, the original ratings card for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in Alberta. We can see that uh, when you take a look at it, you know, October 31st, 1974 is when they received the reel, but the movie, um, the, 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 the movie wasn't released that year in Alberta. It didn't, it didn't get a release in 1974. It was made in 1973, um, but it didn't make its way into Alberta until 74, at which time it was reviewed by the Board of Censors and rejected. And then again in 1976, reviewed by the Board of Censors and rejected. And then again in October of 1981, reviewed by the Board of Censors and again rejected. And it wasn't until November 5th of 1982, so nearly a decade after the movie was made, that it was available 
in Alberta in wide distribution. Now, that isn't to say that, that theaters weren't showing the movie because you could, you could see this film, um, at indie, uh, houses, at least in the States, um, drive-ins, whatnot. But, uh, both, both Canada and Britain, famously Britain, um, because Britain took a lot longer than Canada to get around to, uh, permitting this movie to be, to be shown, um, had rejected it as a, as a movie that ought to be shown. The, the board of censors, a board uh, in Britain, the um, the British Board of Film Classification, uh, would not give it a green light in England. Um, and so you have a movie that's banned. It immediately takes on this sort of notoriety. And we just look at the paratexts for the movie with these these great um, these great. Uh, uh, taglines who will survive and what will be left of them i mean there's just there's an implica- implication of gore you put that up against chainsaws and massacres and the mind conjures up the horrors without even having to see the film you just you could just look at the paratext there's something terrifying about Leatherface's anonymity behind that mask. And it's it's not a clean-cut mask like Michael Myers. It's not a hockey mask um, like Jason Voorhees. It's, it's a skin mask. It's somebody's face that's been dried out and laid, laid over top. And it's just horrifying because there's this, there's this non, non-face uh, sort of sense to it. Um, uh, the, the paratext stating, what happened is true. This um, great voiceover at the beginning of the film by none other than John Larroquette, who is probably best known for comedy. The guy was on a sitcom called Night Court for years, playing a smarmy lawyer. But here he is doing this great, deep, resonant voice voiceover at the beginning of the film that gives us the impression that what we're about to watch is an account of something true, that this actually happened. Uh, And the paratexts reinforce that. What happened is true. Now the motion picture, that's just as real. And the... Uh, the people on the British Board of Film Classification certainly seemed to feel that way about the movie. Uh, none other than Stephen Murphy, who was the secretary of the board, said that this was a film of considerable merit, that it was not an exploitation film. And what he probably meant by that is that, because in, in other comments, he reveals that he, he thinks it's a really well-made movie. This is, this is, this is not a terrible film. Um, so it's not exploitation crap. This is not a B film. He's like, no, this is, this is well made. And he said, you know, in, in, um, agreement without, you know, knowing that he was agreeing with Wes Craven, um, Stephen Murphy said this appeared to be a fictionalized documentary. And the deputy to, there was two secretaries, and the deputy to the other secretary, Ken Penry, said, I can admire the expertise expertise with which it is made, but I still find watching it a rather degrading experience, right? And in 1977, there was an attempt in England to censor some of the content, and they realized that to some degree, uh, the movie was censor-proof, because it was not individual scenes. This concept of who will survive and what will be left of them makes us think that we're going to be seeing chunks of meat. And I mean, we do see chunks of meat, but it's never like prosthetic limbs or anything like that. We'd have to wait for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 for that to be the focus of the film. 
but they tried taking out individual scenes, uh, what they felt was the most explicit violence, but it wasn't the problem. That wasn't the problem. And James Rose talks about this in his Devil's Advocates book on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, that they they took these scenes out and the, uh, the, the British Board of Film Classification still said no. Because it was the overarching feel of the film. It was what Penry was saying when he said, I still find watching it a rather degrading experience. That it's not the individual scenes of explicit violence, because as we're about to find out, are they really explicit? Um, it was the it was the sense of uh, this nightmare vision, this sort of senseless, motiveless malice of the film that pervades it from you know the moment that 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 Leatherface steps on screen, really, because I I don't know. Well, I suppose the moment they pick up the hitchhiker really starts, but I I think they get down to business when when uh, Leatherface finally uh, comes comes on screen. But it it wasn't the particular moments; it was its entirety. And they cited in particular um, the re- relentless torture of um, of Sally at the end of the film. But that tagline, who will survive and what will be left of them? Let's take a look at um, the moment that Pam gets hung on the hook, because that's that's right there in that paratext of the poster for the film. Uh, Leatherface in the foreground, revving up the chainsaw, Pam in the background screaming. This is a painting. We don't necessarily get a shot like this in the film, although it's, it mirrors one of the shots in some ways. Um, but because Pam is unseen in this poster and there's a little bit of blood on the wall behind her, there's a sense in which we may actually see, you know, uh, this woman being dismembered by a chainsaw when we go to see the movie, you know, what will be left of them. So we, we analyze uh, this great shot. It's one of the, you know, in terms of film brilliance, just technical brilliance and excellence, the shot where Pam walks up to the house is outstanding. Um, they had to build a dolly track that ran underneath the swing set and there's a great big, beautiful blue sky above it, giving this sense of everything is normal. Everything's okay. Uh, Pam and Kirk were on their way to find a a swimming hole to just enjoy themselves on this beautiful day. And the house is white and it's pristine and and what could possibly go wrong, right? We already know because we've seen that Kirk got smashed with a hammer. Um, But Pam approaches the house and it's this moment that we might think of as being, you know, uh, sexualizing Pam, that this is a moment of male gaze. And there's no doubt that that an audience member certainly could feel that, but um, Toby Hooper talks about this and says, and, and and there's a few film scholars who have taken a look at it too and said we don't think this is about uh, sexualizing Pam. Um, it's more about exposing the body as potential meat, um, because if you know we expose her back here, then that scene with the hook becomes more horrifying because it's the naked flesh that it's going to be biting into. And so her near nudity is more about exposing the flesh, as it were. We might say, well, why didn't they do it with the male? Absolutely. There is, you know, there's always going to be that lingering. Well, I don't know about that entirely, but, you know, let's, let's, let's go with it because what is this scene setting up? Is it setting up a moment of titillation? No, it's setting up a a scene of horror. Um, And so she approaches the house 
again, we, we don't have any sense of foreboding other than, you know, the awareness that Kirk has died, but the way that the camera shot is handling this has us approaching almost like we're coming up to that house that, you know, everybody says is haunted and Pam's gutsy enough to walk all the way up and we're too chicken. So we stay back as the camera. Leatherface comes out and grabs her. Gunnar Hansen playing Leatherface is such a massive physical presence. He literally envelops the actress playing Pam and then drags her into this room. And the shot brings us that hook right up in the foreground. So, you know, we, we move from, from a really great use of both cinematography and mise-en-scene to the mise-en-scene of a meat hook and the cinematography of a close-up of that hook with Leatherface and Pam approaching it. Then Leatherface hoists her up, and this is where editing takes over. He hoists her up, gives, gives her that, that jump, and then it cuts to the moment of her him getting ready to put her on the hook. The magic of editing moves us to the other side of the camera as the actress is lowered with a harness, parachute harness, uh, onto the hook. And we now know that, that the character of Pam has been, you know, impaled by this thing. Theater goers were convinced they, th they saw the hook go in. They were convinced they saw the hook go in. In the same way that theater goers thought they were seeing um, the cat pursuing Alice in Cat People, Val Luton's Cat People in the 1940s, they were convinced they saw the hook. And so this is an interesting intersection of what Julian Hainich calls direct horror and suggestive horror. Now, most of what we get with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is direct horror. This movie does not hide its killer. When, when Leatherface comes out, it's sudden. He's in full view. We don't necessarily fully get what's going on, but they're not hiding him. He's not a hidden cat woman. He's this immediate physical presence. Bashes Kirk over the head. Then immediate physical presence. Direct horror. Grabs Pam. Puts her on a hook. But... There is a way in which Toby Hooper is playing with elements of suggestive horror here, where the horror is, is not seen directly. Now, the horror of Leatherface, that's absolutely direct horror. The horror of the hook, direct horror. The horror of impalement, suggestive. And it, the, the scene keeps doing this. Now, there's blood all over the wall behind Pam but it's all dried blood. That's all part of the mise-en-scene. It's not part of the action. She's not spurting arterial blood out of her back, but the actress gives us the impression of her pain through her facial expressions and this agonizing close-up. There is a mix here of direct and suggestive horror that is arguably more powerful. And, and I, I say this because uh, we now have Texas Chainsaw Massacre remakes to look at, and, and we can see like they, they, they do it all with, you know, all the, the gore that they can give you in a post prosthetic, post digital age where we've mastered so many different techniques of showing graphic, horrific violence in torture porn, in modern slashers, uh, the evil dead remake, just intense levels of explicit gore. Uh, for myself, I don't know that I'm ever scared or horrified by these things so as so much repulsed or sickened or disgusted and um and and those are certainly part of direct horror but i think that what 
Toby Hooper accomplished with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is is ultimately more refined in a way that makes it continue to feel horrific years later. Even the use of the chainsaw is largely suggestive horror. It's direct in the representation of it within the mise-en-scene. Here's a chainsaw, the chain, you know, and it's moving and it's making those noises. And that's great. The use of sound in this film is, is amazing from the soundtrack, which is, is very off, very upsetting at points, um, to the use of the sound of the chainsaw, uh, Marilyn Burns's screams as Sally, relentless screaming. Uh, the sound is, is, is phenomenal, but here Leatherface gets ready to, you know, take the chainsaw to Kirk's corpse. And apparently Gunnar Hansen was just a terror on the set. Um, and he, he sort of takes a, 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 almost a crazy glee in recounting stories of scaring his castmates. Um, the, uh, the, the actors who played the, the young, uh, hippie, uh, teens, college age, young people, um, they all, they were all really like, they didn't hang out with Gunner. They didn't talk to him apparently. And, uh, I guess, you know, when he went to, um, when he went to take the chainsaw, he just said to the actor who was playing Kirk, like, don't move your head. Like he would always do things that were a little or a lot unsettling. Um, but we don't actually see the chainsaw bite into Kirk. We just see Pam on the hook, Leatherface bringing the chainsaw down. It's all suggested. We don't actually see it happening. But audiences were convinced that they did. Audiences were convinced that they saw intense graphic horror in this in this film. But there's this, you know, this amazing back and forth use of direct versus suggestive horror. Interestingly, apparently, I don't know how much stock I put in any of this stuff um, that the cast uh, and crew say, um, but uh, there are a few sources that corroborate... Um, Toby Hooper saying that he'd really wanted to get a PG rating for the film <laughs> and that the, uh, that the non-graphic use of the hook was, was the way to get there. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, it certainly, in hindsight, uh, is an effective use of suggestive horror mixed with direct horror. So here's the question. If th this film doesn't have exceedingly graphic violence, then why... Why was the British Board of Film Classification so loath to give it a green light that they it was banned in Britain until March 16th, 1999, 1999. So Canada had already had it for a decade and a half at this point, or Alberta at the very least. Um, so what was it about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that that kept... Uh, that kept the British censors from giving it the green light. In and, and I, I want to tell you about this book series because it's it's fantastic. It's called The Devil's Advocates, and it's from Autor Press. And they publish these little monographs, very much like the the BFI film classics that I've been telling you about in previous uh, instances of these lectures. Um, but these ones are just just horror, just focused on horror and. Um, they're, they're quite good. I'm not, I'm not enamored with James Rose's, uh, not everything that he says. I think there's some really good information, um, in the book, 
but uh, you know he tries to tie it to um, earlier, earlier sort of the, the the prehistory of horror, which is always tied to uh, the gothic genre, which is a respectable area of study for academics. Horror is not a respectable area of study for academics. I am not a respectable academic, um, and and whenever you have uh, a genre that is not respected by the larger sphere of academic uh, inquiry, um, academics, academics who are interested in that will try to align it with something that, that's, that is already being studied. And so in the case of James Rose, he connects Texas Chainsaw Massacre to the gothic genre and to Freud's theory of the uncanny. And I can't count how many times I've seen Freud's theory of the uncanny showing up in uh, studies of horror. One of the, well, I took a course on gothic fiction in my undergraduate work and we did Freud's uncanny um, and our prof was really, really big into horror. And he, you know, he flat out said, I wish I could be doing a, a course on horror, but they won't let me do that. So we'll do Gothic, which is sort of like doing horror. And, you know, at the time I was like, oh, the Freud's uncanny. So great. And I, I, I just more and more, I'm just not, I'm not convinced of its usefulness uh, in viewing, um, in viewing horror at the very least. I mean, there's, there's, there, there are some things about it. We're, we're not going to get into it today, but I just basically saying that, you know, Rose and other academics like, and I, I don't know James Rose, so I can't say that he always does this, but in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, he spends quite a bit of time trying to uh, read Texas Chainsaw Massacre through the lens of the Gothic. And in particular, he cites David Puntner and Glennis Byron's book, The Gothic, which argues that despite the diverse range of definitions for the Gothic genre, and that's another thing that's sort of endemic to academia as we can't agree on how to define anything, uh, there is a persistence of motifs, a persistence of motifs. And Rose focuses on three of these motifs or parameters. There are many more that Puntner and Byron talk about, but Rose focuses down on these three. Uh, and again, this, this feels very much to me like the ar many arguments that I've seen where um, an academic will take a modern genre like fantasy or science fiction, and they will align it with some previous bit of critical theory or an approach to, you know, classifying literature. And then that just gets stuck in there forever, uh, whether or not it's useful. Um, I can also think of Vladimir Propp's uh, taxonomy of, of fairy tales and how that got utilized over and over again in, in fantasy studies. And it isn't always as useful as you, 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 you get the impression it is. And that is a little bit of how I feel about Rose's use of Gothic motifs. You might be like, well, why are you using it then if it's not very good? Well, because he gets somewhere that's, that is worth paying attention to. It's just that he takes a little while to get there as I am doing today in this incredible ramble. Um, but he's got these three gothic motifs. The haunted castle, which is represented in the film by the ruined Hardesty house, this ancestral home, right? Right there, that's that's part of the gothic, that there's an ancestral home. It's Sally and Franklin's ancestral home. And we know this because, you know, Sally is initially not afraid of the Hardesty house. Um, she's walking around and she has these, these good memories of it. Um, the reason that I'm not particularly fussed about this this particular reading is that uh the action doesn't take place in the hardesty house the action takes place over at the the farmhouse the the 
shooting the footage at the Hardesty house is a setup to the horror that we're about to get. It's a step in the direction. It's how we get the teenagers within, you know, spitting distance of, 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 uh, of Leatherface and his family of this cannibal family. Uh, and then there's the Gothic motif of the monster, but really honestly, do we need the Gothic as a framework to know that horror includes monsters or that this film has a monster? I just, you know, it, it, again, it feels like, why are we even making this comparison? Do we really need to go back to the 19th century to understand what the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is doing? Or as I say, is this just a way of aligning it with prevalent academic readings um and then we get to the 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 persistent there's a lot of you know sort of mental torture for the characters in the gothic we get this element of persecution and paranoia and boy i tell you we get that in spades in this film um and so you know rose says that as rose puts it he says that this that the gothic is intrinsic to interpreting the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I don't know that we need the Gothic to do that, but what Rose derives from this motif of persecution and paranoia in the Gothic is worth attention because, and this is the most illuminating idea that that Rose's approach produces, um, is that characters in the Gothic are subject to violence or pursuit for, and here's here's the term, incomprehensible reasons that characters in the gothic are subject to violence or pursuit for incomprehensible reasons and that i think is what ties us back to ken penry's statement about you know admiring the expertise with which this movie is made but watching it being a degrading experience that this is a film of considerable merit appears to be a fictional documentary but as Wes Craven said in, in more perhaps visceral language, it looked like someone stole a camera and started killing people. And Kim Newman, in uh, his book Horror, the definitive companion to the most terrifying movies ever made, says, No explanation is offered for the condition of the family, a funhouse reflection of both their victims and the nuclear family of TV sitcoms, but their grotesque habits and appearance, from Leatherface's mask of human skin to grandpa's parchment features are somehow utterly credible. And he refers to Hooper's use of nightmare logic. So Kim Newman saying no explanation is offered for any of what's going on here. So we have this idea of incomprehensible reasons that this is all happening, but it's happening like it happens in a nightmare. When we try to explain it to people the next morning, you say, and then suddenly this happened. And I, and I, I think it was happening because of this, but I'm not sure. You know, it was a dream. And for Sally Hardesty, this certainly takes on that nightmarish aspect. But every step of the way, it's like that. Kirk's death, incomprehensible reasons. Kirk walks into the house. He sees all those animal trophies, skulls on the wall. I think as an audience, I know that for myself, the first time I saw this movie, I was like, what? What am I seeing? Oh, like, you know, okay, those are a bunch of animal skulls. And, and it's up against that red background. WTF, what's going on here? We want to know, like, who lives here? What do they do? And I mean, because of the notoriety of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we're probably aware it's a cannibal family, but we have to try to be that sympathetic viewer and think, what would it have been like to see this for the first time? What's going on here? Have we ever seen anything like this? Yeah, sure, there'd been, you know, uh, monstrous hillbilly families, um, 
there'd been cannibalism, you know, Night of the Living Dead. But had we seen it like, were we seeing it all like this? No. Uh, you know, where we're audience is seeing it. And then Kirk trips, he steps up, and the movie doesn't care to go, let me tell you about this character's backstory, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake would. Just Leatherface steps out, bam, hits him with a hammer. And the, it's the suddenness, the immediacy of this brutality is just so shocking. I mean, this, this might be one of Julian Hainich's moments of cinematic shock. It's not quite a jump scare. I don't, I don't think you go, Whoa. but you, you are like, what? Because it happens so fast. Happens so fast. Bashes him over the head. And then the actor playing Kirk doing the, the flop, the, you know, as he's like going into convulsions. That's just so disturbing. And yet we as the audience, like the characters, have no clue why this is happening. And, and we've already got all sorts of mysteries running around in our head from the opening of the film with those weird flashbulb shots of the exhuming of these corpses and then the corpses being aligned in this weird uh, artwork that gets mirrored once we get to Leatherface's home. I guess this is arts and crafts for the hitchhiker. Is this is just what he does? He just arranges all of this stuff into these, these, these bone sculptures. Um, and that's what he's been doing out at the graveyard as well. The film never tells us. So uh, incomprehensible reasons over and over again. When Pam comes into that room, the actress's face, her facial expressions are telling us, even if we aren't like, you know, because when we're watching old horror movies, we might already know what's up. You know, it's like knowing the, the the jam about Luke's father in Star Wars. We may already know, but we can tell from the way that this film is constructed that what this movie was communicating to original audiences is, is sheer, you know, confusion. As she looks at all these different sculptures, and some of them are really, really disturbing. You know, the, the horn shoved through the human skull. What's up with that? It's, you know, and, and there are readings of this stuff. Again, people, you know, will get, they will get all crazy with the readings. And I'm like, it's meant to horrify. Bottom line, it's meant to horrify. Um, there isn't a lot of, you know, there isn't a lot of political subtext going on here. There are people who think there is. Um, and uh, some of the marketing for the film even said this film's, this film's really about Watergate. I have no idea how you would tie this film to Watergate. It p certainly maybe played on an America that was reeling from the Vietnam War and the assassinations of major political figures in the late 60s and the, the Watergate scandal. But this film is not really about Watergate, how, you know, how do you get there? Uh, even the readings where they're like, you know, this is, this is this film that, um, is, uh, interrogating, uh, the, uh, the, the nuclear family in America. Yeah, it's an inversion, but it's an inversion meant for the, this sort of horror. It's, it's, it's not necessarily a nuanced exploration of those things. There's even, uh, readings where they, you know, sort of like, there's a sympathy for this family that's been forced into cannibalism because their livelihood has been taken away from them. And I'm like, I think you're going too far. Um, we get, uh, the moment of Pam, being in the freezer, you know, and again, who's that incomprehensible to? Not to the audience. The audience, you know, knows what's up now, but it's Jerry. Jerry has no idea what's going on, right? Remember, the characters in the Gothic are subject to violence or pursuit for incomprehensible reasons. So all of a sudden, out of the blue comes Leatherface again, he smashes Jerry over the head, and then even more confusingly, Leatherface starts to freak out. What's he upset about? What's the problem? 
you know? And the filmmakers have said that perhaps what was going through uh, Leatherface's head at this point is where are all these people coming from? I think that might have even been Gunnar Hansen saying, and I was trying to figure out how to, how to play out this scene. But all of this just contributes to this ongoing sense of this chaos of torture, really. Torture, chaos of, of brutal violence and torture. Um, Franklin, Sam, uh, uh, Sam, uh, Sally's brother uh, in the wheelchair. He's just going through the woods, turns on the flashlight. Leatherface comes out, grinds him up. No explanation. And say, like, I will kill you because you did such and such. There's no, like, hey, you took away the meat, uh, the meat industry from us, so let me, you know. I mean, there's a subtext to that throughout the film. But I think that has more to do with uh, building a sense of what, you know, this family is still in the meat business, as it were. That there's that macabre humor that runs throughout this movie that Toby Hooper was quite frustrated with audiences for not getting. <laughs> it's like he did the horror so well that none of his comedy bits really worked. You know, like, look at what you did to the door. Um, that's supposed to be funny. But I think we're just so emotionally gutted by that point of the movie, there's no way that... I mean, if we laugh, it's more that nervous laughter that you do after something really horrifying happens. So, certainly there is this incomprehensibility to the nature of the horror of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I think that that is one of the things that drives the overarching feel of the film that the British Board of Film Classification couldn't censor without reducing the film to further incomprehensibility. Um, there just wasn't, there was no way to cut out what made this film um, difficult, what made this film something that they wanted to ban, something that, that is still disquieting to viewers to this day. I have friends who are big horror fans. They watch this movie and they're like, that movie is just so disturbing. And here again, um, I've already talked about Julian Hainich a few times today, but I want to return to Hainich's ideas on um, these, these types of cinematic fear because i think they're so incredibly useful for understanding texas chainsaw massacre especially when we understand how long some of these these modes are sustained for in this movie so we get terror and hainich says that terror derives from the quick and loud perceptual perceptible temporal approach of a horrifying threat so this is again this is connected to direct horror but now it's different because it's not like the horror is there and it's standing in front of you. It's standing behind you um, as, as, as empathizing, sympathizing viewer with the person who's being chased. So even though it's not a first-person perspective, in fact, it's, this is where, you know, when, when we wonder, like, why doesn't first-person perspective work as well as the third-person omniscient perspective of the camera in, say, a chase scene? Because it's just mostly nauseating to have someone run through the woods with a camera. But if we have the quick and loud perceptible, perceptible temporal approach of a horrifying threat behind an actress who is running towards us, then consequently we as the film viewer feel like, oh God, that shit's coming towards me. It's getting closer. Like, and oh, run away, run away, run away. That's terror. Hainich's concept of terror is us going run, but it's, it's quite f frequently coming directly at us. There's so many shots in this movie where Marilyn Burns as Sally runs towards us and it, along comes, you know, Leatherface with that chainsaw right behind her. Hainich says, even if the outcome of the scene is as yet uncertain, a negative ending seems highly probable. 
<laughs> since the source of the danger draws near perceptibly and is therefore a known quantity to us, the viewers. And just think about how much of a known quantity Leatherface is at this point. The, the suddenness with which he killed Kirk and Jerry, the brutality of Pam's being hung on a hook and then shoved into a freezer. We don't, we don't have a lot of hope for Sally. And in the wake of horror viewers having seen the utterly bleak ending of Night of the Living Dead and the brutality of uh, Wes Craven's Last House on the Left, they might have been sitting in that theater going, I don't think she's going to make it. And so we've got terror. Because this isn't, this isn't Tom Cruise running away from explosions. This is a vulnerable woman running away from a monstrous assailant. So it generates this sense of terror. And she just, you know, and, and this again is one of the things that Kim Newman talks about in his book on horror, that this nightmare logic, you know, Leatherface eternally at Sally's heels as she flees, but never quite catching up with her, right? As he cuts through the door, that's nightmare imagery. That's just absolutely terrifying that we would close a door and feel safe. We've gotten into a home. We, as the viewer, are sitting there going, wrong house. You should not have gone in that one. You know, find another house to run inside. Uh, Leatherface cutting through the door. She, you know, going upstairs, finding the desiccated grandfather and the mummified grandmother, uh, and then jumping out a window. Like, Sally jumps out of two windows in this movie. She's just, like... She's so terrified. It's like, get me out of here. And um, Toby Hooper has said that, uh, and so has the actress Marilyn Burns, that oh, it, there, there are lots of um, references to this. So it's, it's, it, there's a good deal of certainty that she worked herself, herself up into actual hysterics filming these scenes. That, that what we're seeing on the screen at some point is it's, it's how the body works. You get an emotion running through you long enough and you just can't back, back it off. And Marilyn Burns really sells terror through these scenes. And just when we think she's fine, as Kim Newman puts it, Sally escaping only to be dragged back to her captors, right? She gets to the gas station. She thinks she's safe. And then we find out that the guy who runs the gas station is in on the whole thing. And he beats her up with this broom. And that's a super uncomfortable scene too. Uh, there's disparate um, accounts as to whether or not it was Marilyn Burns's idea to just go ahead and actually hit her with the broom so that they could get the take and just have it over and done with because they kept trying to do it in a sort of stage fighting way. Um, but it, it is such an uncomfortable scene because there's something, there's something almost not more uncomfortable. A chainsaw is ridiculously uncomfortable, but there's something really unsettling about the way she's beaten by the broom. I guess it's the glee in the actor's face as he, as he beats her with the broom. He does such a good job of vacillating back and forth between this guy who's like, everything's going to be okay. And everything's normal. And we're just going for dinner. And, and then he's, you know, hitting her with the broken broom handle in the, in the car. And what we get at this point from Hainich's breakdown of uh, types of cinematic fear is dread. Dread is an intense but quiet anticipatory type of cinematic fear in which we both feel for the endangered character and fearfully expect a threatening outcome that promises to be shocking and or horrifying to us. So while we had terror because we could see the monster approaching, now the monster's right there with her in the cab of the car or the, of the truck. And then she's going to be sitting at the foot of the table with all the monsters, Hitchhiker, Leatherface, and, you know, Cook. We can refer to him as Cook. 
Um, and so we sit there with this quiet anticipatory type of cinematic fear. Now, quiet by way of comparison to uh, Marilyn Burns screaming while she's running. Now it's just Marilyn Burns screaming while she's strapped to a chair that's made out of, you know, the, the arms of the chair are literally the arms of some corpse. These really unsettling close-ups that Hooper uses, and I'm using Hooper generally, he had a cinematographer, but these incredible close-ups, really, really unsettling. Uh, and I know from watching movies like this with people that they'll sometimes go, why do they keep showing her eyes so close-up? So weird. It's unsettling. It's so creepy to have these really intense close-ups of her eye um, as it you know, dodges around. I, I think it intensifies the fear. And yet at the same time, what are we seeing? We're just seeing a woman's eye. But because of the context of this incomprehensibility of the horror... Uh, and the nightmare logic with which this film operates, it becomes as terrifying in many ways as Pam being hung on a hook. And then we see what the eye sees. These, you know, we, we've got these close-ups of this terrified eye, and then the camera flips to give us that perspective, and we see all three of those monsters, and they aren't, they aren't fanged. They aren't Karloff lumbering towards the camera. They aren't even the zombies of Romero. They're humans, and they're not supernatural in any way. There is something extraordinary about Leatherface in that Leatherface has all of these different masks, doesn't speak. Um, there's, a, there's a thing that, that Rose talks about with monsters um, that they you know that that the monster ought, really once the monster speaks it sort of loses its monstrosity and uh while leatherface tries to communicate it's not speech per se right um but those masks this, these horrifying masks especially this one where it looks like you know leatherface got prettied up because they had company for dinner um really really disquieting and the smiles on the faces of the other actors in this scene the laughter the maniacal laughter and the sound works really well here too, because it's not perfectly paired with the shots. It's like, it's, it, there's a, there's a sort of disjointed nature to the sound and the edits and the, and the imagery, but it all feels of a piece. Uh, the, the actor playing hitchhiker being right up in her face, his glee. I mean, it's straight up glee at the screaming, right? And we jump back and forth between those things until that dread has grown uh, fully in us. And then they drag her over to be cattle and to have grandpa smash her over the head with this, uh, with this hammer. Um, and friends of mine who are big horror fans say that this scene, this is the one that does them in because there's something just so awful about the way that it's not working, how pathetic it is in some ways and the the torture that this woman has endured super super difficult content uh, to work through um but i wonder about another possible way of reading this film with that nightmare logic in place and this brings us up to um a concept that uh carol clover is uh, the originator of, and it's been developed since. Carol Clover's original exploration of it was a bit narrow, um, but it's been worked with over and over again. But this idea of the final girl. And there are those who say that uh, Sally Hardesty is the first final girl, 
There are others who would say she's not because she doesn't fit Clover's ideas of confrontation and defeat. You know, Sally needs a woodsman, as it were, to save her. And here's where I'm interested in something that Makita Brotman in her book, Offensive Films Towards an Anthropology of Cinema Vomitif, uh, says about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. She links it to a bunch of fairy tales. Um, and so she links it to, and these were some of the, the fairy tales that were running through my head as well, uh, that there is a, there's a certain amount of Hansel and Gretel. And as it turns out, Toby Hooper and Kim Henkel, when they were revising the screenplay, went back to a sort of fairy tale roots of horror because they were originally going to update Hansel and Gretel. And that's what we get, isn't it? Someone lost to a degree. I mean, they're not really lost, but they didn't really know what they were in for coming up to the house that the monster lives inside. It's not made of candy or gingerbread, but it's a very pretty house. It looks inviting. Maybe they'll have, you know, uh, what we need. Uh, we need some gas, right? Um, but there's also a, a, a relationship with Goldilocks that you come into the house and you're not supposed to be in the house. And then the denizens come back and we've got three of them, even in this particular reading, um, Goldilocks and the three bears, except these three bears, while they are a family, there is certainly a sort of, sort of Papa bear. What is cook? Is he an uncle? Is he an older brother? Is he the dad? We don't know. Again, incomprehensible. Um, Leatherface certainly seems to be fulfilling a lot of the roles of an absent mother, um, works in the kitchen, domestic duties is, you know, uh, coded in, in, in sort of female attire at, at several points. Um, and then baby bear, uh, the, uh, the hitchhiker maybe, you know, um, I wouldn't want to go too far with any of that. Uh, there's also some little red riding hood here, you know, as you get lost in the woods and the big bad wolf wants to eat you up pieces. We might say the same thing that Rose was saying about persistence of motifs, but fairy tales, at least in their modern sanitized versions, end happily. The original Grimm's tales and pre-Charles Perrault tales, although some of the Perrault tales also end badly, but those are all about mor morality tales. Uh, learn yourself a lesson. Um, modern fairy tales, uh, they end happily. But like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, at least at this point in its, in its history, um, fairy tales don't give complex psychological reasons for why the wolf wants to eat you, and neither does Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And on the subject of the happy versus unhappy ending, we've got Andrew Tudor's nodes of um, secure and paranoid horror. And the secure horror is when you kill the monster and it's dealt with and you don't have to worry about it anymore. And paranoid, or I would say insecure horror, is when the monster hasn't been defeated and now it's out there. And the, I read a psychological study of um, modern fairy tales where they didn't kill the big bad wolf. They just l left it, you know, in the story, like, you know, and Little Red Riding Hood or the woodman scared the big bad wolf away. And the children were more terrified by that ending because that means the wolf is still out there. And I think what we get with Texas Chainsaw Massacre is this fairy tale logic, this fairy tale narrative structure attached to documentary realism, cinema verite. And the, the combination of those things is really, really potent because the narrative is familiar. The narrative is very familiar as fairy tale sort of logic fairy tale ideas. And then instead of ending the way that, you know, 
fairy tales do. I mean, we do get a rescue. We do get a rescue. Up comes the trucker, woodsman number one, and then the truck, woodsman number two, to rescue our little Red Riding Hood, covered in blood. I mean, there's a sort of nod in some ways to the way that um, the protagonist of the film, The Descent, looks at the very end, covered in blood and hysterical. Is she really okay? Has she really been rescued? Is she really a survivor? So many things that we don't know. This film doesn't give us a grand sense of closure. Its ending is, in many ways related to that idea of incomprehensible reasons for the torture that has occurred, or even what the outcome is at the end. You don't really get the cathartic release of Sally killing the monster, as, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis does in the first Halloween movie. So bringing it back to the final girl. The final girl has a, a, has a strong relationship with Little Red Riding Hood in many ways. At least modern iterations of Little Red Riding Hood, like Roald Dolls, where she, you know, is packing a gun uh, and has a, a wolfskin bag at some point. Because Leatherface isn't dead. The only one who's died is Hitchhiker. Uh, Cook's still back at the house. So's Grandpa. And this final image of Leatherface dancing with his chainsaw. Secure versus insecure horror. The monster is still out there. So is she, uh, is she a final girl? I would say it's, this is proto-final girl. I think we're taking steps. We're, 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 we're almost there. We're almost at the point where we're going to get Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, and we're going to get Sigourney Weaver in Alien, and then on and on and on until, you know, today we have this expectation of final girls, like that they're, a, they're a, an, an assumed trope of uh, horror and you know we're gonna we're gonna get to see how horror plays with some of those things in some of our later movies um but this is this is a moment where the monster doesn't get dealt with even in the way that they they you know that you had back in the universal days where frankenstein's monster you know dies but the audience kind of goes oh they'll figure out what they'll figure out a way to bring him back they'll figure out a way to bring him back this was before we had that kind of franchise with this sort of horror. This was not a franchise yet. This was a single instance of horror, and it was different from other horror in so many ways. But I think it's this, this mix of the incomprehensible reasons attached to this fairy tale nightmare logic rendered in an ultimately cinema verite documentary fashion, which made this movie so awful. Wasn't any sort of explicit gore, because we really don't get that much if any, a little bit of blood splatter when, uh, when Franklin gets chainsawed, but not a lot of, of direct gory horror in this film. We would have to wait for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 to get that kind of brutality. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that kind of prosthetic body horror when we get to John Carpenter's The Thing. But before we get to The Thing, we're going to take a, a look at another uh, sort of family horror and that doesn't mean horror that's made for the family but horror that's about the family next time with William Friedkin's gentrification of the horror film giving it some legitimacy that you wouldn't even need to go a searching for the gothic or a searching for Freud's uncanny to talk about with The Exorcist next time on Triple Bladed Sword